one of the hardest works that you and I are called to do as Christians. We were uh, called to do good works because we have been saved. And one of the toughest things that we can do is show mercy and grace in our lives. Honestly, we're, we're good at receiving it, right? We like to get it. But giving it out can become a real challenge for us. And I know that for myself, and probably for you guys, anybody who has struggled with this, this can be a scary passage because it really makes you wonder, wow, you know, where do I really stand with God? Because when we harbor resentment, when we harbor bitterness, and we see what the Word of God says about it, it requires a heart check. And so no shortcuts today, no, uh, no truncated sermons as much as I would have liked to. Um, you know, I'll, I'll try to stand as I can, uh, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll sit uh, as, long as, as long as I need to. But you know, every single person on the face of the planet, everybody, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're New Age, whatever, every single person on the face of the planet is wired for some sort of worship. We all worship a God. We all worship something or someone. Uh, The warning against idolatry is one of the most prevalent themes in all of Scripture. It's, it's one of the top warnings that we receive in the Bible. I mean, after all, how many times does Jesus uh, warn us against the false god of money, warn us against serving the false god of money? You know, our nation's history, just over the past 100 years, is a clear testimony to the fact that wealth and prosperity are deceptive gods that can be here today, and just gone tomorrow, completely gone tomorrow. The false god of, of entertainment captivates our culture just as thoroughly as people spend four and a half to six hours per day uh, trying to be entertained, watching TV. Uh, people wake up early and flock by the tens of thousands, nationwide by the hundreds of thousands, to a sporting event on Sunday morning, You know, bringing their tithes, offerings, and sacrifices in the form of tickets that cost anywhere from... 20 bucks to 1,000 bucks or, or up from there. Uh, and they'll watch replays of that same event all week long, uh, finding that it never brings a lasting satisfaction. In fact, sometimes it brings us heartache when we see our favorite teams lose. But, you know, getting up for church early on Sunday morning, oh, that, that's asking a lot of those very same people who will get up at the crack of dawn to go see a sporting event. It's, it's the false gods of our culture that blind the unbeliever from seeing the importance of knowing and being known by the one true living God. Because they're, they're intentionally, these things that, that pull us away from God, these false idols that our culture serves, are all designed to appeal to the unregenerate heart and the unregenerate mind. And the irony is that all of these false gods will disappoint They will all let you down. They all have a high cost and a very low reward, often a reward that is nothing more than a brief, fleeting moment of excitement or or, or pleasure or whatever. But the true God offers us a covenant relationship that has a high cost. Make no mistake about it. There is a high cost of following Jesus. Uh, The crucifixion of Christ is what it took to to, to make this covenant uh, offering to us, Uh, not to mention the necessity the necessity of dying to ourselves, 
denying ourselves on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute basis. But the thing is, this covenant with God, whereby we can receive his imputed righteousness, is, yeah, there's a high cost, but there is an infinitely high reward. Spending eternity in the presence of the one they call El Elyon, the Most High God. And this is the gospel message, that this covenant relationship with God, whereby we receive his grace and mercy, because he is a graceful and merciful God, is available to anyone and everyone who wants it. Everyone who wishes to partake of it, it's there. Now, we are a culture... As you saw last night when the Trayvon Martin uh, case was finalized, we are a culture that loves justice. We absolutely love justice. You know, those who thought that, uh, that uh, George Zimmerman was guilty of murdering Trayvon Martin in cold blood, they passionately wanted to see George Zimmerman pay for it. And they still do today, by the way. Check Twitter, check Facebook. People are still calling for civil suits. And in fact, the Obama administration, apparently, I haven't checked this, but somebody posted a link that said that the Obama administration is bypassing double jeopardy laws and they're opening a federal case against George Zimmerman. We, I, I, I haven't verified it. That's all I saw this morning. I didn't have time to read the article. But there are people who are calling for that. There are people who want to see him tried again, even though he's been found innocent of murdering Trayvon Martin. Justice is something that is so important, so essential to our culture. It's a common theme in our movies. I mean, imagine a, a blockbuster hit that they spend, you know, 150, 200 million dollars on in which, you know, the, this detective spends years and years chasing down a serial killer, and when they finally catch their guy, you know, they, they've got him in court. The, the evidence is just overwhelming. This guy's about to pay for what he's done, but they have to let him go because they forgot to read him his Miranda rights when he was arrested. And, and, and everybody lives happily ever after, right? You ever see a movie like that? Of course not, because nobody would want to see it. Everybody would be mad when they see it. We love justice. The American public would never go to a movie like that because we love justice. Or do we? Or do we? Because if God were to give us what we deserve, if God were to render unto each person according to their deeds, every person on the face of the planet would face spending eternity in hell. Every person. Nobody's good enough. It's out of his holiness that we deserve condemnation, that we deserve his wrath. It's by his love that he offered us a way out. See how these attributes are forming together? It's by his righteousness that a solution was presented, that Jesus was offered as a propitiation for our sin. And when you put all these attributes that we've already studied together, what you get is a covenant, an offer of God's grace and mercy. Now, as we continue in our study called uh, I Know I Am, in which we're looking at attributes of the great I Am so that we can know him better, we'll continue to, uh, to look at uh, one, of his, one of his attributes of which we benefit greatly today, not for the sake of simply knowing about it, not for the sake of you know, somehow being entertained uh, by knowing this, but for the sake of imitating this attribute in our own lives. 
We've seen that there are certain attributes of God that we cannot imitate. For example, God is a, uh, a triune being. There are three persons in one nature, one substance, one God. Uh, that's something that we can't imitate. Uh, even with multiple personalities, it doesn't work. Um, but Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God. And so we're continuing to look at ways that we can, should, and maybe even must imitate God. Now, remember last week uh, what the famous philosopher Thomas Aquinas said about God, how his actions are identical to his being. Uh, And that's why we say that God is love, that he is uh, righteousness, he is justice. Uh, Scripture also tells us that the one true God offers grace and mercy to anyone who receives it. And so thus uh, thus he offers mercy and grace in accordance with his holy righteous, loving nature. Now, we saw last week uh, that God will render to each person according to their deeds, and that when he surveyed the hearts of all of humanity, he declared there is none righteous, not even one, and that all have fallen, in, uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, humanity, uh, though we were deserving God's wrath, God displayed his righteousness and his justice by sending his Son Jesus Christ, to pay the sin debt that you and I owed to God. And it is a sin debt. We were indebted to him. And by doing that, God imputed his own righteousness to us, and he imputed our unrighteousness, our sin, our transgressions to Jesus. And we saw that this imputed righteousness that we receive must result in practical righteousness. That is, uh, he doesn't just give it to us for us to sit on, but to act on. We should be acting on it. That's called practical righteousness. It's living by a different set of standards than our flesh dictates, than, uh, than the world does. The world lives by selfish standards. And you and I uh, were, were born into the same system, living by selfish standards. But the system of God, God's economy, must be completely selfless. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul gives something of a, a kind of a rundown of his personal testimony, and he tells his audience, the Galatians, about how Peter, James, and John uh, extended to him and Barnabas, to Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. But in all honesty, let's just be honest, sometimes Christian fellowship can more closely resemble an eye gouge than the right hand of fellowship, more more than a handshake. God's grace and mercy, however, as demonstrated in this imputed righteousness that we received has to change everything, everything. It has to change our attitudes. It has to change the way that we treat other people. It changes absolutely everything, or it should. And if it doesn't, something is seriously, seriously wrong. Uh, So the scripture that we'll be examining today is a parable that Jesus tells in which uh, he gives us some rich insight into the necessity. Make note of that word necessity of demonstrating forgiveness, demonstrating grace and mercy toward others in our own lives. And as we'll see in this parable, without an understanding of how we are to put into action this necessity, this this mercy and grace, we will not live a life that pleases God. We will not. No matter how hard we try, no matter what else we do, if we don't subject ourselves to this command, 
our lives will not please God. Now, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the 18th chapter of Matthew, um, first book in the New Testament, for, for anybody who may not know. Uh, we'll be reading through verses, um, or studying verses 23 to 35. Uh, as you're turning there, let me make a clarification on our terms, defining our terms just a little bit, because uh, a lot of people don't understand the distinction between grace and mercy. Uh, aren't they basically the same thing? And I'd say, you know, they are very similar. Grace and mercy are, are two very similar things, but there is a distinct uh, difference uh, between these two terms. Uh, mercy means not receiving what we deserve. Mercy means not receiving what we deserve, whereas grace means receiving something that we don't deserve. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. For example, if I were to, let's say I were to catch, uh, you know, I'm at the mall and some dude comes up and he tries stealing my wallet and I catch him doing it. You know, I, I feel it, I turn around, I've got him. I've got him right there. Uh, what do I have the right to do? What does this guy rightfully deserve? He deserves for me to you know, call security or, or, or call the police, right? I mean, I, I have that right, and he's broken the law, or, or she. You know, girls do it too, I guess. Um, but let's say it's a he, just so I don't seem like I'm hating on the women here. Um, <laughs> but but I've, I've got this guy. He deserves for me to call the police because he's broken the law. So mercy would be me not calling the police, so the thief would not receive what he deserves. But let's say that I took it one step further, and I said to the thief, what is it that you need? And he says, I, I just need some money to, to feed my baby. And so I open up my wallet, because I've got it back, and I give him all the money I have in there. That's grace, because I gave him something that he did not deserve. You see how that works? So, uh, so there is a distinction uh, between the two. Not calling the police is mercy, and freely choosing to give this guy all the money that I have is an act of grace. So there, there's definitely a distinction. And when we're talking about God's grace and mercy, it's the act of imputing our sin upon Jesus so that our guilt is replaced by his glory, his righteousness, and so, so thus we stand forgiven. And what we're going to see today is that God expects that people who have been forgiven for their uncountable sins will exercise the same toward others, toward others who sin against them. Simon Peter once asked our Lord, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Uh, how about seven times? Seven times to him probably seemed uh, pretty generous. See, the, the Jewish rabbis of the day had this tradition, and they loved their traditions. They had this tradition where you were, you were obligated to forgive somebody three times. I love that word obligated, don't you? Uh, obligated to forgive. Almost seems like an oxymoron. But that after that, after three times, you didn't, uh, th there was no forgiveness. And so when Peter is asking Jesus this question, we need to, we need to understand, he's feeling pretty generous. He, he's feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm really, really righteous to be able to do this. Now, um, Jesus, of course, responds by saying, uh, try again, try seven times 70. And doing a little bit of math here, we know that that comes out to 490 times that we are supposed to forgive somebody who sins against us, 490 times. And the irony, uh, you, know, you know, some people don't even want to forgive once or twice. 
or three times, much less 490 times. And the irony is that if you count all the way up to 490 offenses that you have forgiven another person, the truth is you haven't even forgiven once. Not even once. Once, See, if you're tallying up all the offenses that somebody has against you, that's not called forgiveness. We have a term for that, a phrase for that. That's called storing up wrath. And that's a right that God alone uh, has. He alone has that, uh, that right reserved for him against his enemies. Forgiving doesn't mean that you have to forget what happened. Uh, you know, we're not supposed to be a bunch of zombies who, you know, brainless and, oh, really? Yesterday you called me a what? Oh, I forgot all. No, it's not forgetting uh, what happened. It simply means that you are releasing somebody from a sin debt against you. It just means that, you are for, uh, that you're releasing them, forgiving them. What does a tally mark represent? It represents an emotional debt that's held against the offending person. So if you're forgiving somebody, truly forgiving somebody, you'll never get to 490 because nobody can remember 490 uh, individual offenses. Continue to forgive. That's the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach there. And this sets the context for a parable as Jesus tells us this parable, this story, to illustrate the importance of exercising grace and mercy forgiveness toward others in our own lives. So we start with verses 23 and 24, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Let's go ahead and stop there for a second. So, so here's, a, here's a king. Uh, who has obviously more than enough money. I mean, he's, he's loaned out uh, 10,000 talents just to this one guy, but he's got accounts with lots of slaves. So this guy has uh, more money than he knows what to do with. He doesn't lack anything in any way. And you know, so he, he looks at the balance sheet for the, the debts that his slaves owe him, and he realizes that so many of his slaves, all of his slaves, in fact, are so deep in debt to him that they could never, never pay back what they owe him. They could never buy their way out. And so he decides to settle accounts with them. Now remember, this is in the book of Matthew. And Matthew himself was a collector of sorts. He wasn't uh, a debt collector necessarily. He he may have collected some debts, but specifically he collected taxes. Uh, He had come from a long life of strong-arming people, bullying people out of all the money they had, on the behalf of the people uh, that, the, that the Jews hated the most, the Roman Empire. And he was on their side. So he's familiar with this term. He's the one who uses this term, settle. Settle. And, he, and he's the only one who uses this term in the whole New Testament. And it's actually a compound word, uh, meaning it's composed of, of two words, the word for with and the word for to take away. Uh, so the king is ready to be paid back by his slaves so that these accounts can be taken away, so that they can be eliminated, they can be done with. And at this point, Jesus zooms in, and he draws our attention to a very specific slave who owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, a a talent represents the largest possible uh, unit of currency at the time of Jesus. Uh, A single talent in today's economy, according to some commentators, would be worth tens of thousands of dollars, just one talent. Uh, But just to give us a nice round number, let's say that it's worth $10,000. One talent equals $10,000. What's $10,000 times 
10,000. There you go. Uh, keep going. 100 million. Uh, that's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of debt. Now, this is a guy who has been living it up throughout his life, spending money left and right without a whole lot. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's $10 million. Adding the zeros up in my mind while I'm going along here, it's $10 million. Um, but this is a guy who's been living it up, spending the king's money without a whole lot of thought about really what he was doing. Uh, not a lot of respect for the king. Not a lot of respect for himself, honestly. I mean, can you imagine what it would take to run up a debt that big, a, a debt of $10 million? I mean, no credit card company in their right mind, even during the booming 2000s, was going to give you $10 million worth of credit when you're just a slave. But the king has done that. He's given this guy uh, $10 million, loaned him $10 million. Now, let's say that you were, were sued for, uh, for millions and millions and millions of dollars like this, $10 million, and the judge awarded it to them. You lost. You, you did something. They sued you. You lost. What do you do now? I think your only option is probably uh, to declare bankruptcy, knowing that there's no way that you could possibly pay off a $10 million debt, or, or, or greater, you know, depending on how much the talents are worth. There's no way you could ever pay off this debt. You would be trapped. Uh, the time for this guy to pay, however, has come. And he owes more money than any person could possibly expect to pay off in 10 lifetimes, let alone one lifetime. The only type of person who could pay off this type of debt that we're talking about is a professional athlete, uh, a CEO, uh, a king. You know, it, that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make, though. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is that this is a debt that nobody, nobody would be able to pay back. No, this debt is so big that nobody could ever hope to pay it back. Not in this lifetime, not in 10 lifetimes. It just could not be done. So Jesus continues, verse 25. But since he, the slave, did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now, it's, it's no surprise, right? Anybody surprised that this guy didn't have the money to pay back the king? I mean, yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, he didn't have the money to pay back a debt that was that substantial, that humongous. But since he couldn't pay the debt off, uh, the custom of that time was that the, the slave owner would, uh, would liquidate. He'd sell the slave, he'd sell the slave's family, everything that they had, just hoping to recoup uh, some of the losses. Uh, but, you know, at this point, the, the money's gone. The debt can't be paid off. And so that's what the king decides to do. He's going to recoup at least some of his money by selling off the slave to another slave owner, selling off his wife and children, maybe to different slave owners, breaking up this slave's family. Now, we might look at this and say, oh, how horrible. What a, what, what a mean king. What kind of a king would do that? I mean, we need an uprising here. If, if a king is going to be that mean that he would do that, wow, that's awful. But here's the thing. The slave knew what he was doing. In fact, that's why he was a slave in the first place. He owed money, and he was trying to work it off. That's why he became a slave in the first place. He knew from day one, the day that he became a slave, that if he took out more debt than he was able to repay, that he was putting his family structure, he was putting his wife, and he was putting his kids on the line. Who's heartless now? Who's the one who's so awful now? The slave is. 
You know, if, if you knew that you entered into a debt and, and that if you couldn't pay it off, your spouse and your kids, maybe your grandkids, they'd all be sold off, all be separated. Would you even consider this debt? Would you even consider taking it on? I don't care how much money I owed. I, I wouldn't put my kids on the line. I wouldn't put my wife on the line. Uh, I might put my uncle on I'm just kidding. Um, I, I wouldn't put my family on the line because I love my family too much uh, to do something like that. But this is a guy, this slave, loves himself more than anything else. And he's worshipped, obviously. He has worshipped the false god of money. And listen, the false god of money does not show mercy. The false god of money does not show compassion, grace, or forgiveness to anybody. And that's why this is happening. Let's continue, verses 26 and 27. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, before the king, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So this is basically what you would call a last ditch effort. Last hurrah. He's got nothing except the ability to beg, to beg. He knows he can't pay it back. He knows it. The king knows it. The audience listening to Jesus knows it. He's not going to be able to repay this. It's not like it's a secret. And so the man begs for patience. He doesn't, he doesn't beg for mercy. He begs for time, uh, just a little bit of time to repay this huge debt. Now, we probably all realize that kings are not typically very nice people. That's not how they got into their position, and if they uh, didn't come from a rough background, they came from being raised with a silver spoon in their mouth, and a, you know, you know, in a, in a palace, in, in, a, in a big castle, you know, something like that. So these are not people who are typically compassionate. They're usually very powerful men who really don't have a lot of patience for this kind of nonsense. You know, we, we think that the IRS is nasty, right? I, I mean, yeah, we, we think that they are because that's basically what they do. You know, they, they collect debts. Uh, but the IRS has nothing on the typical king because a king doesn't have to answer to anybody. Does the IRS? I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. But uh, yeah, a king doesn't have to answer to anybody. The king has the right to destroy a person's life, to rip a person's life apart completely. But this king's different. And out of the compassion of his heart, the kindness in his heart, he releases the slave from his debt entirely. He forgives him of this debt. Now, if you're sitting there, if you were, if you, were uh, you know, first century, sitting there listening to Jesus, you would be shocked at this turn of events in the story because no king that they had ever heard of would have been so merciful, would have been so forgiving. Why would a king do something like this? Well, maybe it's because he knew, you know, wow, you know, there's this huge debt and he's worth, you know, a few pennies. Uh, you know, what's a few pennies? I don't need a few pennies, so I'll just let this guy off the hook. Or maybe, maybe it was because this king was gracious and this king was merciful and compassionate. Now, of course, the, the parallel to this at this point is that you and I have lived it up. We have done all kinds of selfish things. We have lived it up. We've run up this tab of offenses against God, sinning against him over and over and over again. And it's a debt that's so huge that not one of us could ever hope to repay it. We, 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 we'd have no chance. It's too 
big. God had no obligation to offer forgiveness to us, but out of his great love, out of his compassion, he sent his son to take away our sin and cancel our sin debt. What he has done in forgiving us is something that we cannot ever, ever pay back. And that's why Paul says that salvation is a gift. He says in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. Um, God made forgiveness possible, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, uh, but he just made it possible by trusting in his son alone for salvation. That is the gospel message. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, and it's a gift. It's a gift, which by definition carries no obligation uh, for paying it back. In fact, it would be insulting for, uh, you know, for somebody, you know, let's say you give somebody a birthday gift and they say, uh, great, how much do I owe you for this? Nothing. No, no, I insist. I don't, I don't want this from you for free. I'll, I'll just, I'll pay you back. Is that an insult? It is. It's a slap in the face. Just like it would be an insult for, uh, you know, uh, to buy somebody a gift and, and then, uh, you know, you say to them, okay, buddy, that'll be uh, $3,000. Just take your time paying me back, but it's, it's yours. Uh, happy birthday. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not a gift if a person has to pay it back, and it's not, if it's not received as a gift if we take the attitude that we have to pay it back. So just like this slave in our parable now has a clean slate, he's debt-free, having been forgiven, you and I, once we trust in Jesus for our salvation, once his righteousness is imputed to us and our sin is imputed to him, we also have a clean slate. Sounds great, but the story doesn't end there. Let's continue, verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Ugh, yikes, choking him. Remember, this first slave was forgiven for what would be a multi-million dollar debt in our day and age. And immediately, upon having been forgiven, what does he do? He, he doesn't go out and proclaim the goodness of the king. He doesn't go out and say, you know what, you owed me money, but man, look what was just done to me. I, I can't ask for any money from you, uh, so I'm, I'm wiping your slate clean too. He decides instead to go out and settle accounts, his own Accounts. And so Jesus tells us that he finds a fellow slave, a second slave in this story, who owes him a hundred denarii, which honestly is the modern day equivalent of what you would probably be carrying about in, uh, in your wallet. It's about 20 bucks, a pretty small debt. And he insists that this man pay him back. And in fact, he, he abuses the man. Rather than being calm and collected about it, professional about it at least, like the king was, this guy goes into a rage and he assaults his fellow slave. I'm sure that once again, Jesus' audience, as they're sitting there listening to him, they're, they're shocked, not only because this is not like a, a big sum of money or anything, but also because that's the type of cruel behavior that you would expect from a king 
not from somebody who was just forgiven by the king, not by a common slave. Jesus continues, verses 29 and 30. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he, the first slave, was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, it, obviously, you know, we've, we've probably all caught on to the fact that this is a parallel of, the, of what happened with the king, the first slave's encounter with the king. But this guy doesn't beg for mercy or forgiveness, just like the first slave didn't. He, he asks for time. He asks for, for patience. And this debt uh, can actually uh, be reasonably expected to be paid back, not in a whole lot of time. It's, it's not a big debt. So the difference between the first slave's request and the second slave's request is that the second slave's request is actually possible. It's, it, it's doable. You know, he, he can expect you know, a little bit of time. Sure, he'll be able to pay him back. And of course, by now, we've all figured out the king represents God. The first slave represents you and me. And the second slave represents anybody who has sinned against us. And again, there's this huge contrast between the way that the king treated this first slave and the way that the first slave turns around and treats the second slave. The king had mercy. The king had compassion. But this slave, the first slave, doesn't have an ounce of compassion or forgiveness to speak of. And we should know that in Jesus' time, debt was a serious thing. In fact, it was maybe more serious than it is today. They, they didn't have the option to just declare bankruptcy and go on with their lives. Uh, yes, a person really could be thrown in prison for owing the modern-day equivalent of 20 bucks. We think, wow, that's, that's ridiculous, but that was the culture back then. And so the best-case scenario in that culture was that the man's family uh, would come in with, with some money and pay off this debt, uh, which would free him from prison. But with that said, we don't see any evidence whatsoever that this second slave has uh, any family. There's no indication of that. And so this could have possibly resulted in the second slave spending the rest of his life in prison if nobody pays that debt for him. With nobody to pay his debt, that's what he's going to do. And, and this debt was so small in comparison to the debt that the first slave owed the king. It, it's like pocket change, whereas the first one, yeah, $10 million isn't pocket change for Bill Gates. It's not pocket change for anybody. So when, when we compare the size of these two debts in the parable, we should find this first slave's refusal. That's what it is. His refusal to pay a small debt. Absolutely sickening. This is absolutely revolting. I mean, who does this first slave thinks he, uh, think he is? Who does he think he is? I mean, I'll tell you who he thinks he is. He thinks he's a king. He thinks he is God. In his own universe, in his own mind, he's number one. That type of attitude leads straight to this despicable and deplorable act of selfishness. So petty. It's, it's just so petty. Let's, let's continue. Verses 31 to 33. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened... They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then, summoning him, the Lord said to him, to the first slave, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy 
on you. Now, of course, we, we see that the, the king's asking this question. He's interrogating this first slave. But we also have to understand that this is rhetorical. The, the obvious answer is that, yes, the slave should have demonstrated the same mercy to his equal that the king had shown to someone who wasn't even in the same ballpark that he was, somebody who wasn't even close to being his equal. And so the lessons here are pretty obvious. First of all, in light of the manner in which God was merciful, graceful, forgiving with us regarding the numerous uncountable offenses that we've made toward him, how dare one of us, any of us, hold a grudge against somebody who has offended us, somebody who has sinned against us, rather than extending grace and mercy to that person. The lesson here, the second lesson, is that our sin against God is greater than any sin that one person has against you or every person in the world has against you. The sin that we have against God is greater. The third lesson is that forgiveness toward others should reflect the forgiveness that we've received. Forgiveness toward others should reflect the forgiveness that we've received. God, under no obligation, extended grace and mercy to us, despite the fact we didn't deserve it. We never could have earned it. Nobody's good enough. There is none righteous, not even one. There's not even anybody who seeks after God. But he did it anyway. He's seeking after people. We would have to be utterly, utterly egotistical and selfish to refuse to forgive somebody who sins against us in light of this huge debt that God has released us from. Let's see how this parable ends. He continues, verses 34 and 35. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So the first slave refused to forgive the second slave. And because he refused, the offer of forgiveness that the king had made to him was rescinded. It was revoked. This should remind us, by the way, of what Jesus said elsewhere. He said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, he said, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Every time we pray, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, will also forgive you of your transgressions. This is serious business. This isn't something to be playing around with. This isn't something for us to take half seriously or or to consider uh, optional rather than mandatory. Vengeance and bitterness are poisons that you don't want to play around with. Give it to the Lord. See, the, the, the unforgiveness that you might hold today will turn into bitterness. That's, that's what it becomes. It's like a seed of bitterness. And when that tree of bitterness takes root and spreads, it doesn't just affect that one relationship with the one person. It affects all of your relationships. It affects you as a person. And so Jesus says, when you're praying, just get rid of any unforgiveness and just forgive. Give it to the Lord. You know what makes it so hard for us to forgive other people sometimes? 
Honestly, it all boils down to self-exaltation. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. And to be quite frank with you, uh, you know, th- this is something that, that I struggle with. Uh, I, I struggle with this because I, I hate feeling disrespected. That, that is a, 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 a pet peeve of mine. It's a, it's a downfall of mine that I hate feeling disrespected. Uh, there have been times in my life when I wanted to act out like this first slave did against the second slave. When somebody offends me or disrespects me, that's my flesh's uh, knee-jerk reaction. That's my first reaction. I'm, I'm somehow going to make that person pay, whether that's giving them a cold shoulder, whether that's, you know, I'm just not going to invest in in the relationship with that person, or I'm not going to look at that person, or worse. You know, you fill in the blanks. The reality is, we don't need to make that person pay, because Jesus already has. He paid it all, and that is enough. That is sufficient. What I've found is that most of the time, you know, when I feel like somebody has uh, offended me or or disrespected me, uh, you know, sinned against me somehow, it was completely unintentional on their behalf. And so the person who's really in the wrong is me for holding that against them. It's me. Uh, Holding a grudge or refusing to forgive, you know, sometimes it's, it's without even being asked for forgiveness. Sometimes it's without being given an apology. But to choose to do that, is a cho- it's a choice. It's a choice that we have to make to forgive. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It doesn't come automatically to us, as we all know, because we've all been there. It's not automatic. It must be a choice. Don't you love the fact that God doesn't uh, you know, put us in this mode where we just automatically forgive over and over again, but he gives us the choice. He doesn't force anybody to do anything. But when our will is submitted to his, we choose what he asks for. Now, why is forgiving so important? It's because the alternative to forgiveness is to imprison ourselves within the walls of unforgiveness and bitterness. You've, you've heard me say it before. I, I say it every time I'm talking about forgiveness or bitterness. When, when you're holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness, it's like drinking poison and expecting the person you're mad at to die from it. It's, it's silly. You know, it, it, it's silly. Uh, why is, is the Middle East, why is it so consumed with wars and hatred and, you know, ethnic uh, tension? It's because they've had, uh, you know, they've, they've embraced this, um, this philosophy in this area of the world, they've embraced this, this logic of unforgiveness where, uh, you know, a, a debt, a sin debt, an offense, you know, it, it might take generations to be paid back, but they will pay it back. And we see the fruit of that type of philosophy in the Middle East. They've hated each other for, for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. We're instructed to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Love our enemies and do good toward those who hate us. That's Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 27. In other words, even if it is a deliberate offense against you, even if somebody hates your guts and says, I'm going to do such and such toward you, or, or they call you a name or whatever it is, let go of it. Don't hold it against them. Remember what we saw uh, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at God's love. Uh, love keeps no record of wrongdoing. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy, by the way. 
I'm not saying that it's easy. There have been times when people have offended me so deeply. This passage has scared me so bad, uh, knowing uh, I've I've got to forgive, but it's a daily reminder, okay? I wake up tomorrow, I feel like this person owes me. No, again, I forgive them. And, and I'll do that every day until it's not bothering me anymore. That's, that's the way to do it. It's not easy. But we have to give all of the offenses that have been committed against us to the Lord. Put them in his hands. All sin is ultimately against the Lord, against God. And therefore, let him deal with it. Let him uh, take his action let him take vengeance if he must, if, if that's what, uh, what it prescribes. And that's why Paul wrote this. He wrote in, in Romans chapter 18, uh, or verse, uh, chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, and I'll end with this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And the word there is really people. So, uh, so guys, you've got, you got to forgive women too. Uh, women, you've got to forgive women too. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, one of the things that might make it difficult to forgive is that the truth is, not everybody out there who offends you wants to be at peace with you. Not everybody does. Some people, they're not going to like you no matter what you do. That's not something that you can entirely avoid. It's just going to happen. But what you can do is your half. Forgive. Refuse to hold a grudge and wait for them to come around. And when they do come around, if they come around, be waiting with open arms for them. We must do what we can to remain at peace with everyone. See, all of us have been offended. All of us have felt disrespected. All of us have been sinned against. Anybody in here never been sinned against? No hands. No hands. Everybody's been sinned against. And it's undoubtedly, so it's undoubtedly happened before. It will undoubtedly happen again. I mean, you stick around people long enough, and it's a virtual guarantee. But it's also true that every single one of us has offended somebody else. Every single one of us has disrespected somebody else. Every single one of us has sinned against somebody else. Anybody in here say, not me? All of us. I know I, know I have. Uh, and it'll happen again. I, I know that it, it's just part of life. It's true that every single one of us will offend others at some point. But what we need to see here is that those are things, all, these offenses, this disrespect, sinning, these are things that belong in God's hands, not ours. He'll deal with them. So release the individual of their sin debt, of their offense, insofar as you are concerned. God has promised that he will deal with it. Do you trust in his promises? That's that's what it's all about. Trusting in what he has promised to do. So trust him with it. Now we've seen in this study that it's impossible to love God but to hate our brother or sister in Christ. You know what makes it hard to love someone? Refusing to forgive them from your heart. What does Jesus mean when he says that we must forgive from the heart? He says it's more than lip service. Don't just say it and not do it. It's not a ritual where you, I forgive you, you know, whatever. Now get out of my face. And you're still harboring that resentment. It doesn't go away with words. It goes away when you release them and forgive them from your heart. It's easy to say it. It's not easy. It's work to mean it. 
Jesus isn't just giving us a, you know, a nice uh, principle to learn and live by here. The principle of extending grace and mercy to others needs to be a reality in our lives every single day. Every single day. Forgiveness is one of the most difficult works that we are called to do. And make no mistake about it, it is a work. It is. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It's a work. It's one of the most difficult things that we're called to do, but it is a necessary action that we must carry out, even toward our worst enemies. And if that's, the fa- if that's the case, that we have to forgive even our enemies, how much more must we feel the weight of the importance of forgiving a fellow brother or sister in Christ? How much more? A lot. A lot more. Now again, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not saying, ah, you know, forget it, doesn't matter. And then walking away and, mm, I can't believe that person did that. Forgiveness is a step toward uh, restoration, but forgiveness itself is not unconditional restoration. You know, when, uh, when Ted Haggard sinned uh, buying crystal meth from a homosexual uh, male prostitute, they wanted to restore him. They forgave him, but there were still consequences. He, you know, he couldn't pastor his church anymore. Uh, forgiveness is simply saying, you have sinned against me, but my sins against God, I know, are greater. And so I choose to just release you. I re- you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me, because I owe more to God, if, if that's the way it's going to be played out. You don't owe me anything. It doesn't mean that you weren't hurt deeply, Sometimes we have to forgive really deep wounds, and, and that's, that's a challenge. No, it simply means that they, the person who offended you, who sinned against you, doesn't owe you anything. And here's the hard part, even an apology. They don't owe you an apology. It, it's nice. We, we like getting apologies. It makes it a lot easier, but don't wait for it. Don't wait for the apology, because a lot of people won't apologize. That's just the way it is. It's nice. It helps to mend broken fences that have been bulldozed. uh, But we can't look at an apology as a prerequisite for forgiving somebody who's sinned against us. Part of forgiveness is remembering that there have been times when we've said uh, or we've done or we've at least thought of uh, things that have wronged others. We're all guilty and that we need to be forgiven for those things. It's, It's also being so thankful that God was willing to forgive us, that we will gladly, gladly extend forgiveness to others. Not just lip service, but true forgiveness from the heart. Because God expects those who receive his unmerited grace to exercise unmerited grace toward others. Living by mercy and grace means not only giving people who sin against us, uh, refusing to give them what they deserve, but also giving them something that they may not deserve, we may feel like they don't deserve, and that is our love and forgiveness. Replace that wrath with love. Our purpose in life is to exalt Christ. Amen? Our purpose in life is to glorify and exalt Christ. How could we ever hope to exalt the greatest forgiver who forgave us if we choose not to forgive others? As far as we're concerned, as much as we are capable of doing, we're called to live at peace with everyone. In order that, we can exalt Christ in our lives. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We know, Lord, that if you did not pay that sin debt, we would forever be indebted to you. Everyone, again, everyone in here, every one of us, has sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Things that we've done, things that we've left undone, you know it all, Lord. We have a sin debt against you that we could never hope to repay. But you forgave us. And so I pray, Lord, that in the silence of our hearts right now, that we would name off the people, Lord, that, that, that we hold sin grudges against and that we would just release them, that we would move on, knowing that ultimately the benefit is to us to forgive so that we are not consumed by the, uh, by the root of bitterness. And so, Lord, we name those people in our hearts right now and we forgive them because you forgave us. May your love continue to transform us into the likeness of your Son in order that we may glorify our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.